to hear now uh, Psalm 51, for God is indeed speaking to us. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence or take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice where I would give it, and you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So ends the reading of God's word. And beloved, what do we know about God's word? It is no empty word for us, but our very life. Let's pray together. Gracious God, indeed this is your word and it is our very life. And so we pray that you would teach us truth in our innermost being. Would you plant your word in our heart? Would you cultivate joy even in this psalm of repentance that you might be glorified, that we might enjoy you? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Joy is something that all people are on the the lookout for, searching for. But true joy is something that can only be found in the life of the church. Uh, The 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor Robert Rainey once said that joy is the flag that flies in the castle of the heart when the king is in residence. Um. Now, before I get too far, let me define joy. Let me define what I mean by joy, because there's some confusion there. And I'll compare it to happiness. So joy is like happiness with deep roots and steadfastness and perseverance. So happiness can be fleeting based upon our circumstances, but joy remains resident regardless of our circumstances. Scripture tells us that we should rejoice always, or be joyful always. 
or we should rejoice in our sufferings. Sufferings are an unhappy business. Nobody wants to go through sufferings, and yet we're called to rejoice even in those sufferings. And joy is um, a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that is, um, so joy is something that's commanded, which is a bit odd if you think about it, that we would need to be commanded to be joyful. But it's also the inevitable working out of the Spirit's or the Spirit working in our hearts, in the, in the heart of a believer. So with that in mind, I would ask, would you consider yourself a joyful person? I have heard a lot of alternatives. I've heard melancholy, distracted, angry, anxious, distressed, depressed, despairing, do those characterize you, or are you somebody who's characterized by a life of joy? Uh, there's something fitting about a Christian being living with a heart of joy. So does that describe you? Would you say that that describes your kids, especially your kids who have made a profession of faith and are confessing Christ as their Savior? Is their life uh, described by joy? Is it describe, describing the life of your spouse? I think um, joy in Scripture, what we see is that even true joy, once obtained, can be lost. Uh, David was, King David was a joyful man. He was a man after God's own heart. He was described as somebody who rejoiced and delighted before the Lord. He exulted over the defeat of God's enemies. Uh, he wrote many joyful psalms. And yet, in this psalm, we see a different David. We see a David who is broken over his sin, a, a David who is pleading for God, the, God, that God would restore the joy of his salvation. And so, when we look at this psalm, what I think the Lord would have us see is that true joy comes only with a restored and right relationship with the Almighty God. True joy only comes through a right and restored relationship with the Almighty God. But praise be to God, God restores us through the gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So our psalm has this title, which in the Hebrew is actually part of the psalm. And it, uh, we, we kind of put it off to the side. But the title says, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now most of us here probably are familiar with the story, but just to set the context, just to remind us real briefly, David, uh, it was the springtime when the kings would go off to war, and for some reason, we don't know why, David stay, stayed back at his palace. And in the afternoon, it said that he went up on the roof, and as he looked out on his kingdom over Jerusalem, he saw a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. And he inquired about her, and the servants told him that that was Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And we know from other passages that Uriah was one of David's mighty men, his trusted bodyguards, his, his fighting force, his elite fighting force. And rather than David saying, okay, well, that's Bathsheba, that's Uriah's wife, David summons her, and she comes to him, and he sleeps with her, and she becomes pregnant. So now he's in a predicament. He has done this thing, and now it's, he's, she's going to begin showing. And so he begins this cover-up operation, where first he calls Uriah, who is out fighting with Israel's army. He calls, calls Uriah back, and he tries to get Uriah to be with his wife. He wants Uriah to uh, spend time with his wife so that this, this pregnancy looks like it's, part of, it's from Uriah. 
And yet Uriah is a noble man, and he won't do that while the fighting forces are out. And so he says no. And so Uriah goes back to the front lines. But with Uriah, David sends a note to the commander of the army saying, put Uriah in the front, in the fiercest battle, with the hopes that Uriah would get killed. In fact, Uriah does get killed. And when word comes back, Bathsheba mourns her husband and then is married to David. And so now David and Bathsheba are married and Bathsheba is pregnant. And the cover-up is complete until the very next day when Nathan the prophet comes in and says, the Lord sees what you have done and he's not pleased uh, in short form. And David, recognizing his sin, is broken. He's broken before the Lord. He confesses his sin to the Lord. And this psalm comes out of that event where he realizes that he has broken nearly all of God's commandments towards other people. He has usurped his authority as the king. He has murdered a man. He has committed adultery. He has coveted another man's wife. He has stolen that man's wife. And he, has, he attempted to bear false witness. God has seen all this, pursued after David, and now David is broken. And David begins this prayer by saying, Have mercy on me, O God according to your steadfast love. He is a broken man. And as we look through the psalm, I think we can break it up into three different parts. Um, it's 19 verses long. The first six verses, we could see uh, David's repentance, a repentant, penitent heart. Uh, the next six verses uh, from 7 to 12, we see uh, David's appeal for restoration. Uh, and then the, the last section from 13 to 19, we see a response of a restored soul. So let's look at that first section uh, where David has the penitent soul, a heart of repentance. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Notice where David begins. He begins appealing to God's character. He says, He's pleading for mercy. He says, according to your steadfast love. And you've probably heard this before, but that word there is chesed. It is the, the, the name for God's covenantal love for his people. It's translated abundant mercy or steadfast love in different places. But this is God's covenantal love for his people. So he's appealing to God saying, remember your steadfast love for your people. And then he goes a little bit further. He says, according to your abundant mercy. So uh, it could also be uh, your much mercy, just your overwhelming mercy. You are a God of abundant mercy. Please be merciful. And he says, blot out my transgressions. Um, then he continues, uh, he, he, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So, Hebrew poetry uses this uh, thing called parallelism where uh, you see repetition and you see that in this particular verse where there is an emphasis on a particular point where he's saying, wash me thoroughly and cleanse me. Washing and cleansing, similar types of things where he's, he's asking, saying, I, I know that I am, I am in need of cleansing. I know I'm in need of purification. So would you do that, God? Would you wash me thoroughly? I am full of iniquity. I'm full of sin. And then he goes to his acknowledgement of his sin. He's doing an actual confession. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He has a recognition, a, a palpable sense 
of his sin that he has committed before his God. And then he admits that this sin, even though it was done to Uriah and Bathsheba and even the nation of Israel, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's acknowledging that sin is, first and foremost, a sin against God. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But sin is sin because God says that it is sin. And so sin is against God. And so he is confessing his sin to God. And he's, God is the one who can then give mercy because God is the one who determines what sin is. And he says, and he acknowledges that he, he would be, God would be just in how he responds to this. He says, against you, I have sinned so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Consider David as throwing himself at the mercy of the court and saying, O judge of all the earth, whatever comes, I deserve it. But would you please have mercy? Would you please have mercy? And then he says, famous words, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in Sin did my mother conceive me. He knows that from his very birth, he has been a sinner that has been part of his being, even from conception. And yet here, in the course of time, he has committed this grievous act against God. And then he uh, appeals to what God is looking for. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He knows that God wants truth. But what has been, come out has been a lie. He wants wisdom, but what has come out was foolishness. So he is repenting of these various things. He's confessing them, laying them down, pleading uh, for God's mercy. So the first section is repentance. And then we move to the restoration. And what we see is a series of images that David gives uh, that indicate that he recognizes what has happened in the midst of his sin, the things that have been broken uh, that need to be fixed. And he starts with this. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now, hyssop is a plant uh, which we see in a number of different places in Scripture, some of them interesting. Um, a hyssop branch was used to paint the doorposts uh, during the Passover uh, when um, with the blood of the lamb so that the angel of death would pass by. Uh, but, uh, and it's used, uh, hyssop is used a couple times in uh, Leviticus. Uh, it's used for cleansing uh, in a case when there was leprosy or some other type of offense. And that, I believe, is what David is thinking about here. He's saying, I need to be cleansed of this moral leprosy that there is something that has made me so unclean that I belong outside of the fellowship of God's people, outside of the fellowship of God himself. And so, God, would you purge me of this evil, this, this, this disease, and I will be clean. And which makes a little more sense when we look at the next, version, or next verse when he says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Leprosy is a... Uh, disease that causes the skin to turn white. And he's saying, Lord, purge me uh, and I shall be clean and wash me and I, I will be whiter than snow. So it's not just um, 
trying to get rid of this particular sin, but he's saying it's, he's identifying the effect on himself. I need to be washed. I need to be purified. I need to be made white. Uh, in Isaiah, he says, though your sins are scarlet, though you will be whiter than snow, we must be washed to be white and pure. White is a color of purity and cleansing. Uh, so he's, he's asking that the Lord would do that. Uh, to him. And then he says, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So it's interesting because David seems to be giving an indication that he has sensed the weight of his sin such that he has lost that sense of joy. That joy that he had in fellowship with God. And it almost is this psychosomatic response, um, psychosomatic as though like your spirit and your body working together. For instance, if you were depressed, uh, you might uh, have extreme weariness in your body, or um, if you were tired, you may be more inclined to be angry or snippy. He, he is now feeling the, the weight of his sin, and he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Uh, he, he senses it in his bones that God has broken him of of this in the midst of his sin. And he, he wants to rejoice again, but he needs God to, let, to, to, to tell him something joyful. To, he, David needs to hear joy and gladness. So there's a loss of joy. Uh, and then he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Uh, I believe that this is, yet again, David is thinking about covenantal language. In um, Deuteronomy chapter 31, when God is giving his covenant to his people, he says that um, if somebody were to sin, he will hide, him, hide his face from that person. And he, won't, he, he can't stand to look at it. And David may be thinking about that. And he says, oh, Father, don't hide yourself from me, but hide your face from my sins. Would you be gracious enough to overlook those things and to forgive them. And then he says, and blot out all my iniquities. And that's, that's fascinating that Dave would, would say that. Because if you, you know your Old Testament, you might remember in Genesis chapter 6, right before the flood, God said that he was grieved by the wickedness of mankind. And he said, I will blot out mankind because of my displeasure with their wickedness. And again, in Exodus 32, I believe it was, when the Israelites had created the golden calf and they had sinned against God, God said to Moses, leave me alone, I'm going to blot them out, and I'm going to start back over with you. And Moses said, please, Lord, remember your mercy. If anything, blot me out so that you may start over with them. And God says, I will blot out anyone who sins against me they will be blotted out of my book of life. And David uses that same language to say, Lord, please don't blot me out. Blot out my iniquities. Please wipe it from my ledger. I understand the severity of what is at stake. And then he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that word for create is a unique word in the Old Testament, but that's the same word that is there in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what David is 
acknowledging is that he can't do this. He can't, in his own power, in his own strength, cultivate the right amount of emotion to do what is right in God's sight. If he is going to have a clean heart, it has to be a work of God, that God has to be the creator, even in the work of recreation of a new heart. And so he appeals to God for a clean heart. One, he's also acknowledging that all the things that he have done, has done, these sins have come out of his heart. And that heart needs to be the fountain that is flowing fresh water, not this fountain of sin. So create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit, a similar type of mindset. It needs to be coming from his spirit. And then he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And perhaps he's thinking about King Saul, the king who preceded him. And King Saul had been chosen by God to lead the Israelites. And then Saul sinned against God. And through the prophet Samuel, God said, I reject you, Saul. And God took his Holy Spirit from Saul. And so Saul was tormented by wicked spirits. And David no doubt knew this, and he's pleading, please, Father, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take that Holy Spirit from me. I need your Holy Spirit. And then he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He is broken. He is without joy, but he longs for that joy that he once had. And he needs to be upheld with a willing spirit. And so we see this, this work of restoration, these things that need to happen, that, that he would remain in God's presence. He would remain in fellowship with God. And he is, he is pleading for these things, that God would take those steps through this work of confession to reconcile him. And then he, he wraps it up with a response. He says, Then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Oh, if only you would forgive me and you would show me that grace and that mercy that is in accordance with your abundant love and your mercy, I would not be able to stop but to teach sinners your ways. I would proclaim of your love and your steadfast mercy uh, forever. He, he continues, deliver me from blood guiltiness, from my, my guilt, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Now, feeling that sense of the, the weight lifted, that, that freedom coming from forgiveness, he, he's got no response but to sing for joy. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Now he cannot help but praise the God who has forgiven him. And then, Interesting, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it, and you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And of course, the Israelites had been commanded to offer sacrifices, and yet so often, sacrifices were used as a substitute for what God really wanted. God really wanted obedience, he told Saul. He really wanted a contrite heart, David says. He wanted a sacrifice of praise. And um, David's saying, if you want sacrifice, I will bring you sacrifice. But what you want is praise. You don't want my penance. You want my praise. 
you, because you are the one that is granting this mercy and this grace. And then he wraps it up with this short little thing where he moves beyond himself to now the people of God. And he says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And what he seems to be getting at is... It, Lord, your people need to be built up. These are your people. Protect them in your grace, in your fellowship, in your, in your love. Build them up. And then cultivate this spirit of joy and praise. And then this, this sacrifice of praise, these burnt offerings, these whole burnt offerings, he's, it's, a, it's an escalation, not just a burnt offering, but a whole burnt offering. And not just a whole burnt offering, but bulls, the, the finest sacrifice will be offered on your altar. It's an exuberance of praise, he is saying, uh, rising from his people. And so it is a response uh, cultivated out of the thankfulness of the forgiveness that they've received. So just a few thoughts, uh, things that I think we, we need to see in this particular passage. Um, first is we have to see that God... this. This, if joy is coming only from a restored relationship, we have to see that this, this restored relationship comes as an abundance of God's compassion, an abundance of his mercy, his kindness to us. Um, Romans 2, 4 says that uh, God extends his kindness to us. And don't you understand that your, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's supposed to lead you to repentance. And here David is saying, you know, he, he, he starts off in the very beginning saying, appealing to God's abundant mercy, his abundant kindness. And know for certain that God is a God of abundant and infinite mercy. And he extends his mercy to you in so many different ways. He proclaims it from his word. He proclaims it from the pulpit. He allows you to sing of it. He is a God of abundant mercy. He welcomes you. And if you've never really confessed your sins from your heart. Know that God is a God of compassion. He loves you and he beckons you. He, he wants to be restored to you because he loves you. So it's coming from his abundant mercy. Um, but the, the second side of that is that we cannot be afraid as, as the people of God, as Zion Church. We cannot be afraid to talk about sin. Um, it's become well-documented over the years, that churches have uh, lost their voice when it comes to sin. We want to proclaim a gospel that is without sin. Um, but this, this psalm and throughout Scripture, the message is clear that we are sinners. Not talking about it doesn't make it not true. Uh, and if anything, it takes the sting out of the pain that we are, the, the painful predicament that we are really in. And it takes the the force of the joy of the gospel out of the picture. Because if we don't understand the, the, the perilous predicament that we are in, which David expresses, we'll never understand how great of a grace that we've received. We'll never understand how great is God's compassion and mercy for us. We can deny it if we want, but we will be unfaithful in doing so. And in fact, all throughout the New Testament, there is a call over and over and over again, repent, repent, repent. And repent is shorthand from stop being 
Stop your sins. You have been given the opportunity to confess your sins to an abundantly merciful God in Jesus Christ, to turn from those sins because you have been set free from the power of those sins and to walk in the newness of life and in joy that has been yours in Jesus Christ. Why would we want to deny that very fact? Why would we want to deny that we are sinners, that sin is something that needs to be dealt with? It is something that we experience. It is part of what drags us down in our daily uh, life. It's what robs us of our joy. Um, so from a public standpoint, that's true, but it's also on a personal standpoint. We, can't, um, we shouldn't be afraid to admit when we individually are sinners. And we are sinners, and we sin all the time. And I can just speak for, um, in my own household, you know, so often uh, the conflicts that we have are a battle to see who's going to be able to outlast the other person in admitting that they actually sinned against another person. We do so much in our lives to try to, per- we have this vision like we have to be perfect, and like we are perfect, and we want everybody to think that we're perfect rather than admitting the fact that we are sinners in need of God's grace. And we do things like saying, well, this is part of my personality. Uh, this is the way that I was born. Um, this, is, this, is, this is a life that I love, and I don't want to let go of it. Um, it's, we do all sorts of different things to try to harbor those sins in our lives rather than confessing them. But look at this psalm and look at the result of his confession. Uh, th- this confession is resulting in abundant joy and praise because he knows that he has been set right with the Almighty God. When we deny the fact that we are sinners in need of God's grace, we are denying the fact that we need a Savior. But we know it in our conscience. We know it in our heart. We know it in our very being. It's like what David said, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. We get so broken bones, but we want to hide the fact that it's a reality. And so we rob ourselves of that joy. We rob ourselves of that grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. And yet we also have to be careful because sin, declaring sin and declaring that we're sinners isn't the point. That's not the point. And making sure that we have a right view on repentance isn't really the point either. The point, my friends, is reconciliation with the Almighty God. We are called to be reconciled to God himself. And that reconciliation and that restoration comes through the vehicle of repentance and forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about that. So let's talk about repentance. Repentance, we saw it right here in this psalm. It begins with a heartfelt, honest confession. It is acknowledging, I was sinful from birth. It is part of who I am. And I have sinned against you, God. It is acknowledging that this is against God, that God's law is supreme, and that I have broken his law. But there's still damage that's done to the people against whom we sin. And when when I sin against my wife, I am sinning ultimately against God because God says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And yet I have sinned against my wife 
in the implication of sinning against God. And so it is right for me to confess that to God, but also to go to my wife and say, please forgive me because I have sinned against you. But ultimately that sin is against God. It is an acknowledgement that these things actually happened. But it's also an acknowledgement that since this is against God, that God is the one that must give mercy. And he says, I will give mercy upon whom I will give mercy, and I will harden those who I harden. And so we ought to plea to God that he would give us that mercy. Um, so it's a confession that must be heartfelt and true, recognizing that we are those sinners. But th- then there's the recognizing the consequence of our sin. That sin is, because it's against God, and God is holy, and he hates sin, sin separates us from him. We are liable for it. We, we all, when we become members, um, we just had a membership interview this morning. Uh, one of our membership vows is that we admit, the very first one, that we are sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath. And we say those words, but do, do we really stop to ponder <laughs> the seriousness of that? We deserve his wrath. We deserve to be separated from him forever. He views us as vile and rebels, and he destroys his rebels. He hates sin. That is what our sin is doing. It is separating us from God. And so there is a serious consequence, and we need God to intervene into that. We need him to forgive us, but also to make us whole, to to unite us to his son, to give us his spirit, to create in us a clean heart and a willing spirit to do those things which he has called us to do. So there's the confession, there's the understanding the consequence, but then there has to be the change. If we don't, if we don't result in change, have we really understood, have we really been confessing from our heart? Do we really understand the consequences? If we don't have that spirit of joy that transforms everything that we do, did we really understand what just happened? Were we just mouthing words? And so those are glimpses of what true humility is. True humility, recognizing who we are and throwing ourselves before the mercy of God's grace. But it's not just repentance in the abstract, but it's repentance in Jesus Christ. And we have to understand this. We cannot forget this. God had promised to Abraham, he had entered into covenant with him, and he said, I will be your God, and you will be my people. He did that without any conditions whatsoever, saying, this will happen. And then he turned to Moses, and he said, you will be my people if you obey my law. And there were these twin covenants that seemed to be at odds with one another, where God was assuring, swearing on himself that this was going to happen. Another one where he was saying, he who lives by the law will do these things. And in sin, we have broken that law, and so there's this conflict. Well, in the person of Jesus Christ, those, that conflict is resolved, where Christ came to fulfill all the righteous demands of the law. And this may be a bit of a stretch for you, but think about this. So we've talked before about the Psalter being Therefore, the Lord Jesus, the Psalter was his Psalter. These were prayers that he uttered. And so when you come to a psalm like Psalm 51, how, how in the world are you supposed to wrap your head around the fact that the Lord Jesus would have 
prayed this prayer where he would say, have mercy upon me, O God, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We know that the Lord Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. He never sinned. And yet, I believe he prayed this prayer on the cross. Because on the cross, the Almighty God took the sins of his people and put them on the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us. And so in him, we have become the righteousness of God. And so on the cross, Jesus was the sinner par excellence. He was the sinner of all the sins of his people. And so the Lord Jesus Christ would cry out, Oh God, have mercy upon me. According to your steadfast love, blot out these iniquities according to your great mercy. And yet, what did the Lord Jesus endure? His bones were broken for us. Uh, The Lord hid his face from his beloved son because he could not bear to see our sins. And he forsook him for that time because of our sins. These things were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet, while Jesus prayed that prayer, the Lord answered yes, because of his righteousness. He was raised to new life. And so we know that the Lord Jesus was forgiven of those sins. And so that forgiveness that is ours is ours because of the work of Jesus Christ in bearing that penalty and being raised to new life. So that, just like we read in the law passage, now if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Those those sins have been paid for in the person of Jesus Christ. And so it is a plea for mercy now that comes to us where the Lord says, yes, you may have my mercy because my son bore the penalty for you. And so how could we not respond with rejoicing? Because Jesus bore those sins for us. We have truly been set free. In Christ Jesus, we have been given a new heart to put to death those sins. And when we confess our sins, he does forgive us. That ought to throw us into a world of joy. We ought to say, like he did, um, I'll teach transgressors your ways. I, what is evangelism? But declaring the good news of what we have received to other people. And yet, often we don't have that joy, right? And if, we, if you don't have that joy, I would, I would suggest to you could be two potential things. One, either you are still living in those sins. You have not confessed those sins that are in your heart. You're harboring something that is separating you, and the Lord is using your conscience to weigh down your heart. Or you've confessed those things, things but you don't really think that that was, it was that big of a deal. You don't recognize the greatness of the gift that you've received in Jesus Christ, in forgiveness. And so what we ought to do as we wrap up is just take advantage of that gift that you have. No longer harbor those sins in your heart, but any time and every time you sense that sin, throw yourself at the mercy of your loving Heavenly Father and receive that grace that you've been promised in Jesus Christ. Cultivate that joy. Reflect on the severity of the gift that you've 
received in Jesus Christ. Grow in holiness. Holiness is growing as we walk closer to our God and we put to death those sins and grow in Christ-likeness. And I guarantee you, the closer you get to the holy God, the more you will sense your sin. But the more you sense your sin, the more you ought to rejoice knowing how wonderful of a gift you've received. And so that ought to cultivate even more joy in you. And when you feel that joy, let it out. Tell other people about it. Sing God's praises, not with muffled voices, but with loud voices. And be filled with joy in every aspect of your life. Repentance and forgiveness in Jesus Christ is the good news of the gospel, my friends. And it's the tremendous gift that has been given to us out of the hand of an abundantly merciful Father who loves us in his Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the source of our true joy. So thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, you are abundantly good to us. You love us with infinite love. And we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, for not asking for forgiveness, for harboring sin in our heart. We do pray that you would open our eyes to the things that are offensive to you, that we might uh, confess them and receive forgiveness and joy. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, our hymn of response is...